becoming simply a technician. There's no feeling, there's no drama, there's no passion. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bot? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song? It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies, okay? Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker's and film lover's perspective. I'm Joe. My name is Justin. Justin, how the hell are you doing today? Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty damn excited to talk about today's film. This was my choice and uh this week we're discussing park chan wook's the handmaiden this discussion will contain spoilers justin what does that mean for our lovely listeners we recommend that you do see the film before listening to this i think having seen the film will make this uh listening experience better but in the case of this film specifically, I think there's a lot of sort of twists and turns that would definitely be spoilers if you haven't seen the film. Normally, I'm one personally that I am I could take or leave spoilers. There's a number of other film podcasts that I, I listen to where if I haven't seen the film, I'm still going to listen. But this one, I think there would be a significant value to waiting to listen to this until after seeing this film. Obviously, this podcast is still kind of evolving and we're kind of figuring out what it what it is and, and, and what it's going to be. I think we're still trying to figure out how to handle spoilers because, I mean, what we're doing now probably is what we'll do. But I think both of us, especially me, maybe even more than you, kind of don't normally care about spoilers. I tend to think that like you still get a great film experience, even if you know what's going to happen. But there are some exceptions. And I actually do think this may be one of those exceptions. Justin, um, I know you hadn't seen the film. This was my selection. And part of my motivation for this was it was a film that I had initially viewed. I want to say it was in April of 2019, if my letterboxed memory is accurate. Park Chan-wook is one of those filmmakers that once you and I decided that we were going to do a podcast about film and filmmaking, Park Chan-wook was a filmmaker that I instantly wanted us to discuss. He has, I would say, kind of a complicated filmography uh, from the standpoint of there are films in it that definitely are not everybody's taste. I think that there are things that audiences maybe find challenging when it comes to him. But for me, he's a filmmaker that I always look forward to the films that he puts out, even if at the end they leave me cold or maybe don't always meet my personal expectations. So Park Chan-wook is a, a director that, uh, and you know, when, when we were texting earlier in the week or last week and we were kind of talking about him because I kind of dove deep into his filmography over the last couple of weeks but we were talking and I and I did say to you he holds a special place in my heart and I think you were a little surprised 
by that. The reason I say that is, or people might sort of relate to this, is that Old Boy was, I, I don't honestly remember where I first heard of Old Boy, but Old Boy was sort of the gateway into South Korean cinema and then also into world cinema. And I think it was for a lot of people in the early 2000s to mid 2000s, even into late 2000s. I have to sort of give him credit and old boy credit for introducing me to a whole nother world of movies. And I think this is happening again. I mean, just a sort of side note, I think this is happening now maybe with people through Parasite. After Parasite won Best Picture, I think a lot of people were like, oh, there's this whole other world of cinema from South Korea that I need to check out. I think it continues to happen, but Old Boy was kind of that for me. And from there, I, I did like sort of dive into all of his films at that time, which I guess was mainly just the, the Vengeance trilogy. I did like them at the time, but I feel like my tastes have kind of taken me in another direction. If at one point he was my favorite South Korean director, he's no longer my favorite South Korean director. So I, I still recognize, even with his new films, the skill, but I don't always necessarily love them. But I have to say, having watched Decision to Leave and The Handmaiden this week, I, I do say that I am curious to see what he comes up with next. It's interesting, and I, I think it reinforces to our audience that's that's been with us for the last few episodes or if new listeners who are, who are just discovering us sometimes you and I are are very aligned on things and we have overlapping taste my history with Park Chan-wook as a whole actually follows a very similar path as you i wouldn't say that it was my first Asian film or the first film that kind of led me down this path. That was actually 2000s film Versus by Kitamura. But this one was kind of that next film up and sort of this evolution of my taste as well. And I remember, you know, I remember Old Boy finding out about this film, watching the first trailer, and I was drawn in. That one to me, much like you, has this sentimental place in my heart as sort of the gateway to foreign films as a whole. Park Chan-wook has a new film come out. It's one that I try to go out of my way for. One of the biggest differences and why I hold The Handmaiden in high regard is this film feels maybe a little bit more restrained, but also some of the gimmickiness that Park Chan-wook generally has isn't as overt. You mentioned that you did this Park Chan-wook marathon, omitting The Handmaiden, because that's the film we're here to discuss. Some of them you had revisited, some of them you had viewed for the first time. What was the film that kind of felt like, okay, this is essential Park Chan-wook? I'm going to choose two films because I can't choose one. I would surprisingly say Joint Security Area, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Before this sort of series of rewatches and watching some things I haven't seen before, I probably would have said Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance was my favorite. It's still up there, but I do feel like it didn't quite hold up the way I thought it was going to. It's still my favorite of that trilogy. It does have the style that Park is known for, but it does feel like a little bit more raw and it has this sort of like, you know, handmade feel that I think some of his later films don't necessarily have because he's become so technically proficient. 
So that's still up there. But surprisingly, I liked Joint Security Area more this time. I think it is maybe one of his more sort of like mature, sensitive scripts. And I actually feel like, to be honest, the reason it's not higher is because of the style that Park brings to the film. It's not nearly as stylized as Old Boy, but I feel like the style kind of gets in the way of the film. And it would have been maybe a better film with like a more subtle sort of touch in terms of the direction. And that's kind of what holds that film back for me. But surprisingly, that film kind of grew on me with this rewatch. I would say those two. But I want to mention real quick, I did watch his first two features. The infamous first two features that he tried to have completely destroyed and I don't think they're nearly as bad as people probably think they are. I'll just say that. Is it a situation where a filmmaker's first films where they may not be exceptionally proud of, but there's still like the skill or the talent there? Uh, Yeah, I would say so. But it also does feel like he didn't quite find his voice. He hadn't just truly discovered what type of filmmaker he was going to be. But watching them in 2023 kind of appealing to me at the same time that they, they don't feel like his other films. If you were expecting anything that was even like similar to like Old Boy as an example, like maybe you thought, you know, it's not going to be as good as Old Boy, but it's going to be the same type of thing. It's not at all. They don't feel anything like his his later filmography. One of the things that as you know, I was doing my prep work for today's episode, I went through and I listened to a lot of Park Chan-wook interviews. There's going to be a few things that I'm going to reference, you know, as we're going through this episode and we'll make sure that these uh, additional sources are, are listed and links to them in the show notes. There's been a, I'd call it frequent because it, it happened more than once or twice in the material that I, I was reviewing and listening to. During a lot of interviews with Park Chan-wook, the interviewers or audiences that were maybe like participating in Q&As would frequently reference Hitchcock and comparing some of his work to Hitchcock. And I think it's primarily his two most recent films with The Handmaiden and Decision to Leave. I wanted to kind of get your take on this because, you know, I, I don't think Park Chan-wook necessarily discredits that or says, you know, no, not necessarily. I, I don't know. I just want to get your thoughts on are people's perspectives accurate where there's that parallel or that connective tissue that you see? You know, specific to The Handmaiden, um, the reference or the comparison that um, people kind of put out there for this film was Vertigo from Hitchcock. I can see certain elements to it, but I don't know that I personally agree with it. I see story similarities. I'm trying to think if I think they're comparable, what they focus on, whether they kind of prioritize the same things. I'm thinking they don't. So I think there's... When I said story, maybe I should clarify. I actually mean plot. There's plot similarities. With The Handmaiden, there, I actually see some some similarities to like something like Psycho. The way the story will be from one person's perspective, then from another person's perspective in like these very distinct sections rather than scenes intercut, where there is like the Marion Crane story, which comes to an abrupt halt. And then there's the Anthony Perkins kind of taking over or Norman Bates taking over. There's like the voyeurism thing that's very present in this film, which I think clearly defines Hitchcock's work. And I think there's always been a lot of discussion about like, 
Hitchcock's depiction of sex without him actually being able to show it because of the time period in which he was working. Maybe that is similar in a way because now Park is working in a period, I mean, even though he's working in Korea, which I think overall Korea for the most part is maybe a little bit more conservative, but he's working in a time period where he can kind of get away with this stuff. And it's actually what people like about his work in terms of the depiction of sex and sexuality. I mean, I see Vertigo in Decision to Leave about the person who becomes obsessed and follows, you know, this woman, that kind of obsession that's present in Vertigo. I don't see a lot of similarities in terms of their filmmaking or what they prioritize in their storytelling. I don't think Park is interested in suspense necessarily as much as like someone like Hitchcock was. Do you disagree with that? No, I and I think that that is actually a pretty significant differentiator between the two as well, because Hitchcock's films, whether successful or not, I'm not here to argue that it all felt like it was the suspense and the build. While I don't know that from the Park Chan-wook films that I've seen, I don't know that I've ever felt like there's an element of suspense. I do feel like there's an element of mystery and curiosity, but I don't think the focus is ever building that tension. I think maybe the biggest similarity is that they're just both very technical filmmakers who I think are very focused on the image and replicating an image they have in their head. And I both filmmakers storyboard extensively. I was watching behind the scenes stuff of The Handmaiden. I watched the um, artificial eye disc. They have a few things on there that's really kind of just promotional stuff. Even in those like two minute, three minute, like behind the scenes fluff pieces that they do, I always tend to like pause and then look at stuff that's going on. He's always got storyboards and he actually communicates with the actors through storyboards, which I don't think is normal. We'll get to maybe that stuff later, but I, I think if anything, the fact that there's a focus on preparation and planning all the shots and creating very precise visuals. We probably should kind of give a little bit of the overview of the film. さ、やるべきことは忠実にやってるのか。ねがよ熟してよる。ハロトルマイスキルマンドロジョ。なんで小島に話しま、なんに。
I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm not going to do this film justice. So The Handmaiden is told in a sort of Rashomon-like storytelling method where you have these multiple characters and depending on whose section of the film you're in, details and new information is kind of provided. The overarching story is uh, a con man who is just referred to as Count Fujiwara, played by Ha Jung-woo, uh, hires a pickpocket named Suki, played by Kim Tae-ri, and he brings her into pose as a handmaiden to manipulate Lady Hideko, played by Kim Min-hi. His plot basically is to get her to fall in love with him and, you know, together they would basically, like, rob her. Lady Hideko is the ward of her book-obsessed uncle, Kozuki, played by Cho Jin Wung. Anything that you would add or toss in when it comes to the story kind of as a whole? What makes this potentially unique is the fact that it is three distinct parts. We even have titles telling us which part we're... And the first part, which is the longest, at least the first hour, it seems pretty straightforward. We're going to go in and con Lady Hidiko and get her fortune with the complication of the fact that upon meeting Suki and Lady Hidiko have like this immediate attraction and sort of fall in love. The last step of this plan is to commit Lady Hidiko to a madhouse. When we finally get there, there's sort of like this twist that Lady Hidiko and Count Ujawara had this this hidden plan. They are basically committing Suki under Lady Hideo's name to the madhouse, and they've kind of like double-crossed her. And at that point, we we shift perspectives. The story takes on Lady Hidiko's story. This is where we kind of get into, you know, everything that's going on with her uncle, um, who's been requiring her to do these readings of explicit stories for, I guess, his like sort of rich friends or acquaintances and sort of has groomed her to kind of just do this one thing. I mean, he also has this desire to marry her for her, her fortune as well. We basically kind of followed the same set of events, but now from the perspective of Lady Hidiko. And Hidiko, she, at a certain point, wants to get out of this plan that she's sort of made with Fujiwara. And sort of her only sort of way out is hanging herself. And then so she attempts to do this, and Suki is there to stop her. And in this moment, they confide in each other. They reveal that they've both been tricking each other and at this point they kind of team up to i guess get revenge on count fujiwara i think that there is one element i think is relevant and probably should call attention to the film is set in 1930s korea at the time it was occupied by the japanese to just be upfront about this one of the things that i actually really appreciated about the film was sort of this this communicative element uh suki is uh korean um lady hideko is japanese count fujiwara is korean but he's posing as japanese if i'm not mistaken and then uncle kozuki he's also korean trying to play japanese 
I, I think that that's kind of an important element to discuss here and to bring up because the way that Park Chan-wook sets up the communication and the subtitles, I thought was really kind of interesting and unique. Anything that's in Japanese are colored in yellow, while basically any other language, so primarily Korean, appears in white. You have this cultural clash element, and I think about Edward Yang's Brighter Summer Day, where there is this foreign invader element to it, or this cross-cultural conflict. This film isn't really about it any more than those Taiwanese films are about it, but it, it just sort of influences the world Yeah, to your point, I mean, it's not what the film's about, but I just thought it was interesting to set it during this time period where this is what's happening in that world. Going off of that, I was going to give a little background about how this film came to be set in that period. The film is is based on a book, The Fingersmith, from 2002 by Sarah Waters. Parks sort of said that he was drawn to it because of the kind of the twists and turns and the he described it as like the vivid characters. And he was initially going to set it in Victorian England, but realized later on that there was already a BBC miniseries based on the same book. And because of that, he's like, well, it makes no sense to set it in Victorian England. We should set it somewhere else. And obviously Korea makes the most sense. And then from there, tried to pick a time period in Korea that made most sense. And and basically said that this time period added another obstacle to that love story between Suki and, and Lady Hidediko. What is initially in the book more about class, now it can be class and the fact that they're different nationalities, which was significant in that time period in Korea. One of the interesting pieces of information or trivia that I got while listening to Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith from October of 2016 was he and his co-writer had this draft of the film, took it to Sarah Waters to sort of like get that approval. And upon reading it, her basically response was, well, it's not necessarily based off of Fingersmith because of the deviations that he did. So she suggested to credit it as being inspired by. Just to kind of further dive into that, he had shown her the completed film and she was very much a proponent of it and very complimentary of the film, which I think is kind of an important piece of note when dealing with the subject matter as a male filmmaker. This is um, from In Another Time and Place, The Handmaiden as Adaptation by Chi Yu Shin. And this is in reference to what Sarah Waters had to say about the film. Waters calls The Handmaiden a beautiful, beautiful film and tells its host, Francine Stock, Given that the change of period, change of setting, and change of so much really, nevertheless, it is recognizably my story and my characters, which was wonderful for me. When questioned about the film's lingering sex scenes and the male gaze, Waters defends the film as, although it portrays women trapped by male structures and trapped within the limits of male-authored text, it shows them escaping from these things and using them, using bits of them for their own pleasure. She continues to reflect that the film has a paradox at the heart, just like her book, and how it no 
knows it and even relishes on its paradoxes and contradictions. In the Guardian interview, she remarks that though ironically the film is a story told by a man, it's still very faithful to the idea that the women are appropriating a very male pornographic tradition and to find their own way of exploring their desires. So, I mean, that hints on stuff that we might actually get to a little bit later, but I think very positive. I think it's actually in itself rare that a writer of a book would be positive about the film adaptation and even more so given some of the circumstances of this this film. I think we'll probably go into the complicated nature of the film and clearly I touched on it and that interview calls it out on multiple multiple instances. I think we should probably acknowledge the fact that we do have a film that is about two women who love each other. I think it's fair to say that by the end that they love each other. Some people would disagree, but yeah. Or at least find solitude in one another. It's a film that is directed by a man. I think that the things that I like to talk about will eventually get to when we talk about maybe the sexual nature of the film. It is an erotic kind of thriller of a film. So, Justin, overall, did the story work for you? It did really well, actually. I mean, what's most significant about the story? In terms of the events and what happens, it's a pretty simple story. I think where it gets complicated and what's interesting about it is the manner in which it's told in three distinct parts from three distinct perspectives. Credit has to go to the book for that, although the film takes a very severe deviation from the book at a certain point. I'll, I'll mention that, but the three sort of parts from different perspectives is what makes the story work and, and interesting. I almost feel bad making this comparison, but I think it's the most obvious comparison to make is its similarities to something like Gone Girl. I won't go into details of Gone Girl if you haven't seen Gone Girl, but the first part feels like it's about this very specific thing. And then there's a moment where it just cuts and we're now telling the story from someone else's perspective and it completely changes what you thought was going on. Where I think this is better than Gone Girl is Gone Girl feels like it's just about a twisty plot. And for me, this feels like even though Park said what drew him to the film was the dramatic twists, these twists actually feel like less about the plot and more about revealing character, character motivations, character dynamics. It just reveals additional layers. And so it feels like so much more than just like we fooled you kind of thing. You kind of touched on one of the big things that for me really, really worked with the way that this story is told. When you watch the way that a scene is unfolding, basically from Suki's perspective, but then the next time we kind of see a different version of it or a variation of it, or maybe sort of like the aftermath of it from Lady Hideko's perspective, the performances take on kind of a new meaning. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the acting a little bit later in the episode. To me, that was just something that was so powerful and so, so well executed from each telling of something, the entire story takes on new wrinkles. I have seen some reviews where they feel like the retelling of events is unnecessary. It takes too long to get there and that it could be 
told in minutes rather than half of a film kind of thing. I feel like in that case, that's plot. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for the best efficient way to tell this twist from a plot perspective. I don't feel like that's what this film is about. It's about that journey that you take and learning about the characters. And that requires you to go through a lot of the same events from the other perspective. Whereas if that second part was cut down, it certainly would have been a shorter film, but it wouldn't have been a better film. I think the pacing's really great, actually. What do you think? We watched the theatrical version of this. Um, yes, we should have said that earlier. <laughs> there is a extended cut that I believe is an additional 21 minutes. This was a rewatch for me. I want to say that upon this rewatch, I remember this film being longer, albeit not feeling longer. So I'm kind of wondering if I did previously watch the director's cut. And there are things that occurred in there that I think also help kind of flesh things out. I think if you're complaining about the pacing of this film, I think that you're you're missing things because to me this thing was elegantly paced the film required you to see the different perspectives in order to one sell the relationship to also selling the 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 decisions that the characters make cutting those scenes short or treating it more of that gone girl method definitely like undercuts certain reveals and certain decisions the word that I keep coming back to when I look at this film is masterful. I think that this may be Park Chan-wook's most masterful film. So you mentioned that this was based off of Sarah Waters' 2002 book, Fingersmith. Have you read this book? I have not. My knowledge of the book comes from a description on Wikipedia. So are, are you at all familiar with the book? I actually didn't know this book existed until preparing for this episode. I'd like to go into a little bit of it because I think it's maybe an interesting discussion about, about adaptations and how you can change something so dramatic that it actually makes it, I'm going to say better, but I can't really say that. I haven't read the book. It makes it different for sure, but I think decision makes just so much sense and it works so well. So here's some spoilers for the book as well, if anybody plans on reading the book. The first part and the second part are basically the same as the book. And the moment where Lady Hidiko is hanging from the tree and Suki catches her and they reveal that they're both manipulating each other. <gasps> That's where it completely diverges from the book. The book features um, the story about Lady Hidiko and Count Fujiwara go back to Suki's, what is it, like her caretaker, the woman who kind of raised her, was involved in this plot because Lady Hidiko and Suki were actually switched as babies. But so there's that. And then there's some explanation about each baby is the rightful heir to half of the fortune. And so this was a plan to get the whole fortune. Count Fujiwara character dies. And then Hidiko starts writing her own adult fiction. Somewhere along the line, Lady Hidiko and Suki find each other again and reconnect. The way I would describe that is like, in my eyes, a little convoluted. And I think what's great about the film is that moment where they tell each other, like, I've been manipulating you, is this moment where they earn each other's trust. They finally stop lying to each other and manipulating each other. And it pays off that moment that 
was previously set up. That moment where Lady Hidiko says, I don't care if you curse or steal or something, but don't ever lie to me. It kind of pays off that moment because it's this moment where by finally telling the truth, they're inadvertently revealing that they love each other. I think it paves the way for them to be together. And of course, it does diverge into like this women getting revenge on the awful men sort of story, which I think is good. I like that. But it also, I think, is so much more than that because it's like all of their differences are sort of dissolved for that moment. They're on the same same level. They've both been manipulating. They've both been manipulated. And in that moment, they can truly connect. The way it plays out from what I understand of the book just doesn't have that sort of element. And this also gives them agency as well. The way it's described on Wikipedia, it's like all the men are still controlling that, or maybe the ant is controlling their journey. By doing this, they are given all the agency in how this story plays out. They have their plan now, working together to get their revenge and to escape. They have all that power. You know, this might diverge us a little bit here, but I'm going to ask you a hypothetical. Park Chan-wook clearly made the decision to make this in Korea after discovering like the BBC having their version going. Had he not, or had that film not been kind of in the process, and Park Chan-wook was able to kind of continue and make this, whether it be like American or British, do you feel like it would have been forced or he would have been more beholden to that source material? Do you feel like there would have been more restraining elements or things kind of holding him back? I'd be curious your thoughts on that. In terms of the actual story, he claims that major change was going to happen even if he made it as a Victorian era England story. I believe that. I mean, he also, I think, claimed that he was going to, in terms of the sexuality on display, he was going to do what he felt was right for the story, implying that nothing would be different. I don't believe that. I believe there would be, particularly in the case of the sex scenes, he would be sort of confined and he would have to, I guess, basically censored a little bit in that area. I think you see it in Stoker, even though Stoker has that masturbation scene, I don't think Stoker feels as free as his other films do. So that's my opinion. If I could reference DP30 interview with Park Chan-wook in that discussion, he does reference the restraining element of either doing it American or British, and it would have resulted in what he viewed as less sensuality, and it would have likely forced him to have to make it a different way. And he does reference Stoker in in that as kind of that having to be subjected to that Western filmmaking style. Also in that interview, if I could just also side note, he does reference Jennifer Lawrence as somebody he had as like a dream casting for one of those roles. And I just thought that was incredibly interesting. Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) I don't see it personally, but you know. But so he did say that he feels like he would have had to change the way the film was made if he had made it in English. Correct. Okay. I just, off of things he said in the past, I figured he would have tried to claim that he would not have been, but I guess I agree with him in this case. As a filmmaker, you, you see certain tropes and certain, I guess I'd call them cliches because they happen so much. There's a number of things when it comes to this film that are traditionally viewed as cliche elements that I actually think work really, really well. Like you have the trope of the unreliable narrator. Why it works so well here is 
your narrator isn't necessarily unreliable. It's just a matter of perspective. One of the segments we do on the show is, would we recommend this and to who? Clearly, we'll talk about this more later. But from a filmmaking perspective and a screenwriting perspective, I think a lot can be gleaned by how narration and how a narrator is used in this particular project. I don't really have anything to add there. I think it is a pretty sensational script, to be honest. For me, it just it was working so well. Any maybe little things didn't really matter. I think what's interesting about the film is that there is this sort of elevated nature to it because it is, at least for us here in America, a foreign language film and Park Chan-wook has some sort of reputation. But this film, like a lot of his other films, are essentially just genre films. He's not necessarily like an art house director. If he is categorized as that, it's only because they're not in English. This film, this is essentially at its heart, is a heist film or a con artist film. Depending on the perspective, the goal is to like steal the woman's money or just like help the woman escape from the reign of her uncle. It's all sort of about setting up a plan and then executing on that plan. And we see people say how they're going to do it. And then we see it sort of play out. There's always complications in these types of films that make the story interesting and obviously challenge our characters. But in a normal heist film, as an example, it could be this unexpected piece of security. They change the safe. We now have to crack this new safe kind of thing that you weren't planning for. In this case, the complication is that they fall in love. Ultimately, the plans would have worked if it wasn't for the fact that the two women fall in love with each other. That's really kind of what derails this whole thing. I want to discuss this a little bit more when we get to the editing, because I think there's some interesting parallels with the editing between this and a heist film. What's interesting about this is it does create just this base level entertainment. Even if you take nothing deeper from the film, I think it's a pretty entertaining film. I think there actually is more to take out of the film, but even if you don't, it's just kind of thrilling and engaging on that level. Do you have any thoughts? I'm confident that we're going to get into a number of things that kind of spiral and spin off of what you brought up there once we get into like the technical elements. There's character pieces and there's the way that the film kind of reveals information that I think is just really interesting and fascinating to me. I'll just kind of touch on it a little bit here, but I, I think that the flashback scene to Suki and just sort of the reveal of the plot or what's kind of intended to be the plot, I think is just incredibly interesting. So we'll we'll talk about that, I think, as we talk about different technical elements. Or maybe it, it fits into our next topic or point, and that's set up and payoff. Well, this is something that I think is really well done in this film. And this does sort of go hand in hand with the technical, but it also is very much written into the script. We haven't really mentioned it, but I think we have to acknowledge Park's co-screenwriter on this, Chung Seo-kyung, who he's worked with since Lady Vengeance. A lot of these things that I'm kind of praising about the script, she's... Oh, she's intricate in that. Yeah. In the Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith, Park actually talks a little bit about how it was actually Chung Seo Young who started that first draft. They sort of talked about things, kind of collaborated, but she was the one that laid the foundation for it. She deserves a lot of credit for this because I think without her guiding some of this, I, I don't think it's as polished. Yeah, so I'll just get into a few of the things that stuck out to me. Well done, or that's really interesting. I labeled this as like setting up, paying off. The film sets up some piece of information and then pays it off somewhere down the line. And Park never, never really holds your hand 
he kind of just expects the viewer to pick up on it and, you know, to be paying attention and to kind of make those connections. I have a couple that I just wrote down. The the rope. Obviously, we were introduced to the idea that Lady Hidiko's aunt hanged herself from the tree, but the rope itself, Suki finds it in a hat box when she's going through the clothing, fantasizing and looking forward to the fact that all these things are going to one day be hers. And she finds the rope and it's kind of like, what does the rope mean? There is the possibility that it's something used for sex. Given the nature of the film, it's not unreasonable to make that assumption, but it's never explained. Later, when Suki and Lady Hideko are finally fleeing, they walk by the tree and the rope is hanging from the tree. And it's that moment, it's like, well, how did that get there? And it almost functions like visual metaphor. As they walk away, this is what they're leaving behind. This before was her only escape. She's now escaping in a new way, and she's leaving that idea behind. But then later, when we get that reveal that Lady Hideko is actually in the process of hanging herself before Suki catches her, that scene of her attempting to hang herself, now the rope takes on this whole new meaning. And we're sort of just left to make those connections. I already talked about the don't lie to me thing where Lady Hideko says, you know, I don't care if you curse or steal, just don't lie to me. I think that is a setup for specifically the moment where they finally tell the truth. There's the moment where Count Fujiwara is talking to Uncle Kozuki and he's talking about how he can always tell whether he could potentially sleep with a woman. And he talks about he looks at the woman's eyes. They always turn their gaze away, but then they always look back. And that's like his way of knowing. And then he goes on to describe that Lady Hideko doesn't do that with him. And that's how he knows he couldn't seduce her. So that's the setup. We actually get the payoff before the setup in this case, because I think the payoff is the moment where Lady Hideko and Suki see each other for the first time in daylight. Their eyes meet, they look away and they look back at each other. So with the nonlinear structure, this case, we actually get the payoff before we get the setup. But you're supposed to make that connection. Even the cigarette thing, Count Fujiwara is like captured. He's in the car between the two goons. They're bringing him back and he pulls out his cigarette case and he lights three cigarettes. And I don't know about you, but I had this initial thought. It's like, oh, three cigarettes, three guys. Is he going to offer them cigarettes? Of course, that would be out of character for him. But that's the initial thought. But then he doesn't. He just smokes all three himself. But then later we realize why he smoked all three. It was so he could give Kazuki no choice when handing him a cigarette. He has no choice but to deliver him the, the one laced with the mercury. And then we've already established within the character of Fujiwara, this idea of poison. He gives her something that she could use to kill herself. The opium vial. This is one that I was actually, I had listed for this. This is sort of kind of linked with this one too, because we've already sort of set up that he has this within his character, that he'd have something to kind of do this, but you don't really think about it until this moment. So it's all these little clues. It's like a setup, and then we finally pay off with what it actually means. And I think it's interesting that sometimes it doesn't even come in that order. 
sometimes it's payoff setup. You have thoughts or additional. Yeah, I think there's also the element of the dialogue as well and the repeated nature of dialogue and how it takes on that different meaning, not just from the perspective, but where we are in the story. Count Fujiwara is told by both women or the question is posed to him by both women. Basically, what could a crook ever know about love? Juxtaposed with the fact that Suki herself is a criminal and sort of the way that that kind of unfolds and reveals is quite fascinating. The other one I think of is Count Fujiwara is talking about, do you want to have sex with a corpse because you're removing all this life from this woman? And then she also mentions Lady Hidiko is referencing her cold hands and cold feet when in bed, Suki is talking about how when the Count finally sleeps with her, it's going to feel like he's sleeping with a corpse because of her cold hands, cold feet. Depending on who's saying it and depending on where it is in the story, it has connections or different meanings. Any other thoughts, Joe? It kind of leans into just the screenwriting element, and it kind of feels relevant to the way that the setup and payoff, but also like really minor things that I don't think that you notice or pick up on or you kind of forget about until it becomes a bigger thing. And I kind of think back to the concealing of information of as she's taken to the basement, you as an audience, you're kind of left wondering, well, what's down there? As I was watching it, having kind of forgotten sort of the big payoff with Count Fujiwara, whatever I'm imagining is probably worse than what's there. And then the very end, we we kind of get the true reveal. There was an interesting, there's an interesting video essay. It's the Handmaiden Why Costume Design is Important. It's a really, really brief video on YouTube that I strongly suggest people go and take a look at because it does a good job of talking about the intricacy regarding the gloves that Lady Hideko wears and the symbolism surrounding it, the duality of it, and the points in time where she's wearing them versus not. I don't know if you picked up on that as you were watching the film initially, because it is just one of those small details. I did, but it wasn't enough for me to be aware of always when she was wearing it and when she wasn't. One of those other reasons that I wish I would have been able to rewatch it before we did this, because I do think there are things that upon a second viewing become a little bit more clear. I just want to take a moment to touch on the way that Suki is introduced Basically, we kind of see her having this motherly, maternal instinct. There's this kindness to her. So that's kind of like our first introduction to her. But then we kind of get a little bit more of that story and you find out that she does have this and this is kind of like part of her character trait. But then also she's deceptive. One of the reasons why maybe you can connect with her a little bit easier and why maybe I think Park Chan would kind of opted to introduce her in this way was you see kind of that goodness to her versus starting with her being deceptive and then revealing the kindness. Any thoughts on that? No, I agree with you. We start the story already in progress. And so we get going right away before we jump back and reveal the true character motivations. I also just think it works for the story. It gets us going before we get focused on whatever little exposition there is in this film that we need to get out of the way. I don't really have anything to add there. 
kind of touched on the complicated nature of the film. It is a male director directing a, you know, a, a lesbian film. I don't want to call it a controversy surrounding that. I know that there were negative reviews, some negative feedback surrounding it. Some people refer to it as maybe a little misogynistic or referencing the male gaze. Before I think we dive into that and the sexuality, the sexual nature of the film, I just want to share one piece of information. And, and this was actually something that every interview I found with Park Chan-wook discussing the project, he referenced the fact that his co-screenwriter, Chung Si Kyung, she kind of wrote that first draft of it. And over the course of the screenwriting process, both of them had a collaborator that they would go to. And it's one of Chung Seo Young's friends who Park reveals in the interview is a lesbian. They collaborated with her, I guess, to kind of make sure that they were getting it right and to have that input and for her to kind of share some of those experiences because they wanted to make it and write it in a way that was not out of touch. I think that is evidence that the director and writer took extreme care with the representation of two females falling in love and the way in which they would express that physically. I don't think that's ever going to convince anyone who sees the film and has a negative reaction to it. You know, that's not going to convince them of anything. I do think it says something that there were good intentions, but if someone views the film and they see what they view to be like lesbian sex fetishized or the lesbian fantasy on screen, no matter what the director says, it doesn't mean anything. I'm not saying this is my opinion. I'm just saying I think it is evidence that they took care, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the final product isn't guilty of what some people are accusing the film of being guilty of. If that's what they see when they watch the film, that's their experience. But the thing that I see happening is people unwilling to have a conversation about it. Plus, then there's the almost like the contempt for anybody who did rate the film high or even enjoy the film as if that they're somehow awful people because of that. That's the end of it. Shut down the conversation. And it's like, well, I think we should be able to have a conversation about like whether these things are present in the film or not. And we can have different opinions on it, but it does feel like a lot of it is like, no, this is what it is. And end of conversation. Honestly, for me, I saw this as actually a very empowering film for women. You look at these two that are very much treated by the men of the film in a very oppressive way. Admittedly, that's kind of a sign of the time and maybe the culture. They're treated as these lower individuals, but they have the most depth. They have the most range. They're the smartest characters in, in the entire film. They're the ones conning everybody else. Kind of sexual elements become excessive. I can see that. But for me, I, I saw something completely different. And I think that the scenes of intimacy are actually important to have when it comes to these two characters. To play devil's advocate here, I think what a lot of people are saying is that there doesn't appear to be a lot of intimacy. There appears to be a lot of graphic sex. And making a distinction between the two, is it a love story, do they fall in love? Where some people are claiming, well... We don't see them fall in love. We see nothing but the physical, the physical thing between them and nothing more. 
in the world of the film, this is how these two conduct themselves. And if an audience member wants to view it as gratuitous, sure. But is it not possible or reasonable that to these two, this is what intimacy is? You take Suki. She's a hustler. She's a pickpocket. To her, this probably is what her character believes intimacy is. You look at Lady Hideko, her character. What does she do? She reads these like pornographic type books to men that are the books are quite exploitative in nature. So her view and her perspective of what intimacy or sex is is not likely what somebody of traditional upbringing would view or feel is is intimacy. I think one of the problems people who feel like this film is just purely sexualizing lesbian sex is they point to the final scene, the final sex scene, because it is this moment where they reenact or recreate one of the scenes from the books. And because they're doing that, they're doing it in this sort of like posed way that they say is posed for the camera. You know, I can't argue with that, but I mean, it's pretty clear that it's about reclaiming imagery from the book and about taking something that was harmful and hurtful and exploited them and finding a way to find pleasure in it, that's clearly the intention. Then there's the conversation about, is it successful in doing that? For me, it's that destruction of the books and then the reclamation of this. For me, it does work a little bit because of that. I can understand the perspective. I get it. I just also feel like there's other things that happen that counter that point of view. You're approaching this scene from a narrative perspective. You're saying because the destruction of the library is included, therefore this, the two together create this different meaning. But the people who have a problem with the scene aren't thinking about the scene from a narrative perspective. They're thinking of it from, I see these women with my eyes and they're being posed for the camera. They interpret it as being posed for the pleasure of men. What happens narratively is like outside of that. The key question here is, is the problem that a straight male made a film about lesbians or is the problem his execution of that, specifically the sex scenes? And I think it's sort of split from some of the reviews I've seen. Some people feel like straight men need to stop making films about lesbians. And some feel like, well, no, a straight man can theoretically make a film about lesbians, but scenes like the sex scenes in this film that push it into sexualizing. It's two different conversations. In that regard, the importance is doing your due diligence, doing your research, making sure that the messages you're trying to communicate and the stories you're trying to tell are done so in a way that create conversation and shine a light on things. This film to me is really a, a film about women empowerment and women taking control. It just so happens that they're lesbians. I'm going to read a quote. This is uh, Gia Tolentino's review from The New Yorker. It's entitled The Handmaiden and the Freedom Women Find Only with One Another. Some will quibble with the sex scenes. At Slate, Laura Miller wrote that the maid and her mistress fall back into the tired visual cliches of pornographic lesbianism, their bodies offered up for the camera's delectation in a carefully arranged exhibition that will fit into Uncle's collection. But the women know what they look like, it seems. They are consciously performing for each other. 
and Park is deft at extracting the particular sense of silly freedom that can be found in enacting a sexual cliche. Let's take a step away from the controversial nature of it. Is there anything from a filmmaking perspective or anything else that you would touch on when it comes to the sex scenes, the sexuality or the depiction of sex? I think it's interesting the way one of the sex scenes, the pivotal sex scene, the first sex scene between Lady Hidiko and Suki, we see it twice. I do think it's interesting that the first time, from my perspective and from the perspective of a Park Chan-wook film, the first time we see it is relatively tame and almost features no nudity, actually. And then the second time we see it, we see more of it. It gets much more graphic, for lack of a better word. I wonder what the choice is for that. If it's easing the audience in to this, or if it's he feels like we need more time with the characters before we get to such a graphic sex scene. The more we're sort of in with the characters, we're invested with the characters, we know about the characters, the more it feels like this passionate love scene rather than just sex. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? And what, in terms of filmmaking, did you pick up on? And I think that it kind of goes back to maybe in a way, not directly, but indirectly, the setup and payoff element where I'm going to kind of divert a little bit here, too. I think that there's an element of passion that occurs here and sort of this accepting nature between Lady Hideko and Suki the way that these two characters interact. There's like this level of excitement between them in all of those scenes. And that's juxtaposed with Lady Hideko reading and she's unbothered. She's not reactionary to that. Going back to some of the things that I, I touched on, that's why to me there is like this love story element and whether it's love or not, we can argue that. But you see the passion, you see the intricacies to their relationship that you don't get when interacting with any other character. I do want to kind of touch on Park Chan-wook's director process. It feels like a good moment to sort of transition into this because as of late, um, as of the recording of this podcast, there's been a lot of discussion and, and a lot of questions about intimacy coordinators on set. This probably will come as no surprise, but this was something that as Park Chan-wook was doing the press junkets for this film, this was a question that repeatedly came up for him and his process of doing this. So a couple of these come directly from Film Courage interview with Park Chan-wook and Kim Tae-ri. Kim Tae-ri mentions about having kind of been collaborated with during the rewriting process. She felt like she was kind of involved and she had a degree of say. Park commented that he had uh, shot the majority of the sex scenes very early within the first few days of shooting. He had storyboarded, and we'll talk about his storyboarding process in a moment. He had basically storyboarded everything. He would take those storyboards, he would show them to the actors, he would show them to uh, the crew to make sure that he could get everything set up. And then it was very much a, a closed set. It was him, it was the two female actors that were involved in the scene, and then a female boom operator for the shooting of those scenes. While shooting scenes like that, the importance is to get through them as quickly as possible, as little downtime, no joking around, nothing like that, just to move through it and get the actors out of that situation so they can be in a more comfortable situation 
Uh, Justin, I kind of threw a lot at you there. What do you unpack from all that? Sounds like a director taking safety and comfort into consideration and making it a priority. I would be curious to learn if Park's process for these types of scenes has changed because he's directed many sex scenes. And I'd be curious if this has evolved over time to being sort of his process. I don't think anybody really enjoys on-screen sex scenes. It's just an uncomfortable situation and you just kind of have to make the best of it. I think that's what's going on here. I do think one thing is interesting though, where do you put these in your schedule? I think that's an interesting conversation because you could say we get them over with right away, which seems to be the case here, right? And then the rest of the shoot is a little bit easier. Or do you save them to the end? Theoretically, everybody's just a little bit more comfortable with each other. The other thing to note here is that while this film features a lot of the crew that Park Chan Wook has been working with from the very beginning of his career, it's like a whole new cast for him. One could make the argument you save those really tough scenes for the end of the schedule. Ideally, everyone is a little bit more comfortable with each other. You've you've bonded over the shoot. And but that being said, then you also have these scenes weighing over your head. I think for actors, that can be a lot knowing that every day we're getting closer and closer to the scene I'm dreading to shoot. I can see kind of an argument for both ways. It's interesting to hear that his strategy is to just get them over with as quickly as possible. I think as a filmmaker and as a director, getting to that place of passion so early could be incredibly challenging. So are you, are you leaving something on the table? To me, I, I think it works here, but... I also heard that Park was talking to Kim tae about who else was being cast in the film, and he had mentioned that Kim Min-hee was playing Lady Hideko, and then she got really excited. She was apparently a huge fan of Kim Min-hee. So that's maybe a situation in which that's just good casting and they kind of lucked out. You're a big fan of someone that might, depending on what personality that person has when you actually meet them, but that might actually benefit being more comfortable with someone or just another interesting thing with this particular situation. Park Chan-wook is a big proponent of storyboarding. Based off of the interviews, he said 80 to 90% of the film is already on paper. Did credit that as being incredibly helpful when it comes to those sex scenes because the actors kind of know what to expect. Justin, as somebody who absolutely adores storyboarding, what are your thoughts to hear 80 to 90% of the film for Park is already on paper? As someone who loves storyboarding, was that a sincere <laughs> or a sarcastic comment? A little bit of both. As somebody who has wrapped on a feature film that there's a lot of planning and organization that went into it. And, you know, we, we worked on doing storyboarding. It makes sense in his case, I think, from our experience, just briefly, like, yeah, we storyboarded some scenes. We didn't do a lot of storyboarding. Our goals with that film were much different than Park Chan-wook. If I was making things like Park Chan-wook, I think I would want to storyboard almost everything. It just makes sense when you have something so precise in your mind. He's a shooter. He gets a lot of different angles. He's shooting four or five angles on a conversation, and you know that this part, we need this shot, this part, we need this shot. I feel like I don't know how you make that without storyboarding, personally. And I feel like he's able to get what he gets because he storyboards. This one came from the Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith discussion. Writing the script, the script on this took almost a year to complete the first draft with his co-writer, but then an additional two to two and a half months just focusing on storyboarding. As somebody who's worked on a number of projects, 
I honestly couldn't envision as a cinematographer shooting this film without storyboards. One of the biggest challenges I've found as as a filmmaker, directors, not all, but I think directors sometimes struggle with communicating their vision. And a lot of the directors that I've worked with they're really basically just trying to be a cinematographer because it's put the camera here instead of focusing on, I think, what they should be. For Park Chan-wook to do this, it, it makes complete sense. And I think that if there's a lesson for any like filmmakers listening, it is work with your cinematographer ahead of time. Your project's going to be better for it. I think that this speaks to that. Moving to the cinematography, I kind of found this as sort of an interesting little nugget here. This was actually the first film that Park Chan-wook shot digitally, and it was actually based more out of necessity than it was actually anything else. Apparently in Korea, they can't shoot on film any longer. All of the labs are closed and gone. When working on creating the imagery of it, they put a lot of care into anamorphic lenses focused a lot on recreating like a 70s style look and did everything that they could to try to bring more of a like a film look to it, something vibrant and, and a little bit more classical. I thought that was kind of an interesting little tidbit, kind of touching on the color and the vibrant colors. I, I think that you see that pretty early on in the film, just like that drive to the countryside. You can see just tons and tons of color there. I really actually liked how Park used green in this film. Even like grays and browns have almost this greenish hue or tint to it. I don't know if you noticed that, but. Yeah, I think if you were going to make a list of director trademarks, I think the color green is actually one of those for him. Green typically has been associated with life or growth and that he's used it to mean the exact opposite because when he sees green, he thinks of like decay it's not necessarily just the image having a green color grading. It's green props, green clothing, green hair sometimes, obviously. Park likes to have a lot of camera movements in his film. I feel like with this film, the movements actually felt a little bit more motivated. Having just recently watched Decision to Leave and also recently rewatching Old Boy, I felt like the movements in this one were really communicative. One of the examples of this, when Suki is standing at that window, the camera like pulls back and then we get a shot of the, the hanging tree. And I feel like there's just it's just little things like this where we're reframing our perspectives or the audience view to something else. The movement feels like there's reason behind it other than we just want the camera to move. On the flip side of that, though, I think that there are moments where he shows like restraint by not having the camera move. And there's shots like when Suki is leaving her home, there's basically like the shot down an alley and it's pouring rain and, and it's her turning and walking towards the train. For the most part, the movement is motivated, but it's also not afraid to sit and linger. 
I would agree the movement is motivated more than maybe I've seen in the past, or it seems to be. Park did express using movement to either capture or emphasize the emotions and the character's emotions. I did see something where they were making a pretty big deal about the use of dance floor technique. The dance floor technique is you basically lay the set with plywood, you then cover it with this sort of rigid plastic, gets fit together like a puzzle, and then you tape the seams, creates this very smooth surface, and then you're you're basically just dollying on wheels rather than laying track. And they talked about using this method because it, number one, allowed for really complicated moves, gave them total freedom, especially on ensemble scenes with lots of actors and that it helped be able to emphasize emotions better with these moves, even though they also talked about that this is actually more complicated than just laying a track, but it allows the freedom to do more interesting things and create expressive moves. I think you see that here. First example I noticed was when Suki is first arrives at the house and she's being shown around and it's dark out, it's night. <laughs> Suki's walking towards the camera, the camera's pulling back with her, and then at a certain point the camera spins, continues to move through the space essentially becomes her POV as she looks around this huge house. It's like a push, tilt, and pan, and then it sort of like pivots around the stair railing, and then she enters back into frame and it continues to follow her. So it's like emphasizing this initial sort of shock at sort of how sprawling and lavish this place is, given where she comes from emphasizing how foreign this world is to her. That's just one example, but they wanted to emphasize the fact that this was a technique that they could use in these interiors to create really expressive movements. I do kind of agree with you. I, there were moments in this film where I was like, he's holding on this shot longer than I've ever seen him hold on this static shot. It just felt like this was a filmmaker that did adapt to what the story was and adapting his style to kind of match it. The shot I loved from this is that moment where Lady Hideko is sitting, Suki's standing. They're both waiting for Count Ujawara to enter for the first art lesson or whatever, and he's purposefully late. And it just holds on that wide shot, and you can see the, the shifting sun emphasizing the passing of time. Yes. But we just hold on that wide. No need for a camera move. And we hold until he barges through the door without even knocking or anything, and they all kind of jump to attention. That just seems like a shot I've never seen him do before. Did you have anything regarding the mirror shots? I think it's significant that there are so many mirror shots. The way it kind of struck me was that most of the mirror shots aren't just mirror shots. They're shots in which we see characters looking at each other through mirrors. Those mirror shots aren't necessarily the perspective of the camera. They're almost like perspective of another character and their eyes are kind of meeting through the mirror. It's just this thing where it feels like to me that they're not really seeing the real person. They're seeing the reflection, this external image that the person is sort of putting 
putting on and that there's all these sort of hidden things below the surface that are being obscured. And I think that you're right there because it does take a little bit for the true nature of the female characters to be revealed. And I I kind of also position it in the terms of like the male characters that the male characters never get anything more than that. All that you see of them is this thing. For our listeners who have been with us, they've probably heard me say that you're the editor of the group. So talk to us a little bit about the editing of The Handmaiden. Since it's almost required for me to have a what other people view as nitpick. <laughs> I, I do. I Justin do wanna, has a nitpick. Well, shit. Now I've heard it all. I do want to briefly discuss something. Okay. I'll try to keep it brief. So I believe Park Chan-wook's editing, and of course, everything I'm about to say, the blame and the credit should also go to the editors of the film. In this case, J-Bum Kim, who this appears to be this first editing with Park and Kim Sang-bum, who has been an editor since Joint Security Area. I'm going to keep saying Park, but I was going to say, I think Park's editing is his strongest skill, but also there's something about it that sometimes bothers me. And I'll get to the bothersome thing first, obviously, and I'll get it out of the way. Joe, this will sound somewhat familiar to you because we've had similar conversations about this. A little context. So every time there's a cut in film in general, it does take a certain amount of time for the viewer to reorient to the next shot. That's just the way it is. The amount of time that it takes, I think, depends on a number of factors. The person the type of cut, where the focal point in one shot is to the focal point in the next shot. So if you have something that is the focal point on the left side of the frame and you cut to a shot in which it's on the right side of the frame, it's going to take a moment for your eyes to search and find that. So no matter what, it takes a certain amount of time. And that's why I hate films that have like 18 frame shots or 24 frame shots, 36 frames. And I do count sometimes when it's really sort of offensive because I'm curious. I mean, let's say like it takes eight frames to figure out where you are that's only giving you like 16 frames to take in all the information that that shot is then trying to to deliver to you and i wonder sometimes if that's enough time usually it's not i would say then it also introduces questions of what is the purpose of that cut what does that add rather than holding on the previous shot And a constant rapid cutting does also destroy the opportunity to create different rhythms which i think is important all that being said I think there are times, now Park isn't on that level, but there are times where Park cuts to a shot and his shots are like so sort of dynamic, the compositions, that he cuts away before you really take in what that shot has to offer. You created such an interesting shot and because it is Park, I know there's purpose in the shot, but I just feel like he doesn't give sometimes enough time to register, process, and take in everything that there is in that frame before you're on to the next thing. Do you have thoughts on that? This might be a little out of scope for this discussion. I think I noticed it more as this film progressed. And I I think that the instance where I really felt kind of that jarring nature of it was probably when the two women were escaping the home. I didn't really notice it quite as often over the course of the rest of the film. I do think that, and this is admittedly very unfair of me to do, having just watched Decision to Leave shortly before this film, within just a matter of days, I'd say, I think that that issue is more egregious in the first half of Decision to Leave than it is here. Now, 
Does that necessarily excuse it from happening here? No, it doesn't. But at the same time, I found myself able to kind of keep up with everything with this one. I understand because I've known you for as long as I have. I know this is a common complaint of yours. I do see it here, but I don't feel like it's as egregious as other filmmakers or even other park films. Well, yeah, I think that's probably true. It's just something that's always bothered me with his editing compared to other filmmakers, especially American filmmakers. Obviously, it's it could be much worse. Do you have examples? Like I said, the one that kind of stands out to me is them like running through the field and them trying to get away. I think that the visuals and the cinematography for those were just so dynamic that to your point, I think it did take me a little bit to reset, refine focus. I have one that's maybe not even as dynamic as that. Lady Hidiko and Suki are in bed. Just so they're facing opposite directions. And I think it might be that moment before they actually kiss. And so Suki like flips over to face her. He cuts to Lady Hidiko's face close up of her for it feels like less than a second. I don't know. I didn't actually count this one. But that one felt really weird to me. I understand what a close-up of her could convey. I just don't know if it is conveyed because it's given such little screen time. It's something that I've noticed with his films forever. So it's it's almost like a thing that I keep hoping is going to change and it doesn't. And there's certain filmmakers where I say, like, that is a bad choice. Here, I'm not going to even go that far. I just feel like maybe it would be better if he held shots longer. And now, I think it's worth noting there is a potential other issue here, and that is subtitles. And that's just unfortunate for us non-Korean-speaking viewers, in which if a shot is cutting mid-subtitle and you're trying to finish reading a subtitle, your focus is going to be on the subtitle, not on the shot. And so that maybe makes that a bigger issue. He's not to blame for that issue. That is just a side effect of watching films with subtitles. So maybe that's part of the issue too. I don't know. I think that's a valid point. And watching a subtitled film, and this is a completely different discussion, not specific to The Handmaiden. I think watching a subtitled film multiple times in a short period of time is is actually quite beneficiary to you. I watched this Monday of this week. I was really focused on story, the content, characters, direction. I was not paying maybe as close attention to certain technical elements. So admittedly, maybe I'm less than prepared for the technical discussion this week because I was so focused on everything else. Now, admittedly, I kind of found myself just lost in the film, maybe more than any other film that we've discussed to this point. You know, so that's interesting that you say that, because I felt like as someone who doesn't get lost in films that often, because I am, you know, I think as filmmakers, we tend to pay attention to the technical things sometimes. And as a result, it does create this disconnect between experiencing the film and getting lost in the film. And it's interesting you say that about this one because I had the same experience where I did kind of get lost in the story in a way that doesn't happen to me very often. And that's just a different experience. I personally do like watching a film and only looking at the shots. It's not maybe the best way to watch a film for the first time, but it's like a a great experience for me. This is just like another thing where it's like you actually do sort of get lost in it again 
the way you maybe did before you got so hung up on on the technical things. It, it doesn't happen very often. So I guess it happened to both of us on this one. I think that says something about the storytelling in general. What else do you have when it comes to the editing? I also said his editing is his greatest sort of skill as a filmmaker, which is probably not what most people say, but I, I really think it's true. I think structurally, the scene to scene editing that he does is truly sometimes breathtaking, I would say, because it just seems so effortless. But I know it's not from watching other movies and my own experience editing. But just to get into a little bit of the details here, I mentioned quote unquote heist elements. And this translates to the editing as well, where there is the inner cutting of the planning stage and the execution. And typically it'll be like, okay, so group of thieves sitting around a table, this is how we're going to break into the vault. And then it transitions into them actually doing that. And it creates this, uh, essentially takes two lines of action and creates it into one line of action, the two lines in this case being line one, planning the heist, line two, executing the heist, they become one thing. And so they do that here in, in different ways, obviously. Suki hands Lady Hidiko the letter. We cut to the scene where the contents and the function of the letter are being explained. <laughs> So in this case, it's almost like reverse again. Typically, you would start with the planning, transition into the execution. We're now here midway into the execution, and we transition back into the planning. But really, the function of this is to handle exposition, to give the audience the information they need, but tell it in a visual way. This is done really well in this film. The other one is uh, Count Fujiwara stuttering when Lady Hidiko arrives at the dinner. And then we immediately cut to him doing this fake stammer and explaining, if you do this, she'll fall for it. It's not only explaining the plan, it's revealing character, it's weaving them into this one sort of line of action where it doesn't feel like a flashback, it doesn't feel like exposition, it just becomes this one thing. Do you have any thoughts? Do you disagree with me entirely? No, no, not not at all. I'm in agreement with you. And I, I think that it just helps the pacing of the scenes and the pacing of the film overall. But it does feel like the way that information is given and provided is just really interesting and engaging. You're given exposition dumps to an extent, but they don't feel like those exposition dumps. You're very much engaged and rooted in them. Another example of this real quick. So the idea of two actions becoming one seamlessly is that moment where Fujiwara gives Suki the box with the earrings. And he's like, give this to Lady Hidiko. And so he hands it to her. And then we immediately cut to close up of the box being opened. And then we cut 
to like a wider shot to reveal that Lady Hidiko just opened the box. So it becomes line one of action is him giving it to Suki. Line two is Suki giving it to Lady Hidiko and it becomes one by cutting them together that way. When you first see it, it feels like Suki just opened the box and is looking at what the gift is, but it's really Lady Hidiko. So it's just like two things becoming one seamlessly keeps up the pace, sort of emphasizes what is important in those scenes. Those are the types of things he does. I can't remember the film, sadly, because I watched I watched all of them so quickly. It's one of the problems with doing that is they all kind of blend together in a way. But there was a scene where two groups of people were on an elevator. One group goes into the elevator and the door closes. And then we cut to another elevator and the door opens, but it's the other group of people. So it's like these two lines of action that seamlessly kind of create one thing. I just think it's really interesting the way he does it. So the other thing he does is elliptical cuts and jump cuts, which I personally like. I, I know that not everybody likes them. Elliptical cuts and jump cuts are used interchangeably sometimes, but I tend to think of like elliptical cut as an ellipse in time and space. So like cutting out a portion of a scene, whereas a jump cut is just an ellipse in time. So cutting out a portion of a shot, but that's just the way I think of it. That's not necessarily a textbook definition. This film in terms of elliptical cuts, the one that stood out to me is Count Fujiwara storms off after Suki he gives her the coin. He's like, leave. She refuses to leave. He kind of storms off. We have like a medium of him walking. The camera pans to reveal Suki is following behind him. And then we immediately cut to like an over the shoulder of, of the Count yelling at Suki. <laughs> So it's that cut that removes the portion in which she walks up to him, the portion in which he starts talking, and it just cuts to mid-conversation, him yelling at her. And it, it creates this, this moment that's surprising and jarring and impactful. It's sort of the way Suki, I think, feels in that moment where it's almost like nothing to straight yelling, and it creates that impact. I actually feel like that is something that is pretty prevalent within this film. And I think that maybe more than a lot of the other films that we've talked about, The Handmaiden does kind of lean on its editing for its storytelling and the structure of that edit and utilizing the elliptical editing. It does here, but I think that's also just a trademark of his films. And I think you see a lot of that in Decision to Leave, too. Yes, I don't know if it always feels as organic or necessary in that film as it does here. I think it works a little bit better here. Although I like it personally. There's not a lot of jump cuts, I don't think, but there is the moment where they're destroying the books. Suki lifts the cover to that bookcase. And then we jump cut to her pouring the ink on the books. So we're just cutting out whatever time in that shot where she bends down, and picks up the ink. It's one of these things where it's just creating this rhythm and it's also emphasizing the destruction. We don't need to see the little part where she picks up the ink because it's all about just the destruction of the books. That is something that I think a less patient filmmaker and maybe a less disciplined filmmaker would have done just over the course of like the destruction of the library as a whole. It feels motivated that it really occurs when it does. And the other thing to think about is given how much he shoots and you know how much he plans, 
you can easily envision lifting the lid as one shot then we cut to another angle in which she pours the ink on the books that doesn't happen it's one shot with that jump cut in there it could have been one of the things they discovered in the edit but given how much he plans it also could have been planned i think either way it's it's very interesting I just want to touch on performances for a moment here because I feel like we would be doing a disservice to the actors involved here. I found this like piece of information very interesting. I talked early in the podcast about how this is basically kind of like a dual language film with both Japanese and Korean. The cast is predominantly Korean. And before shooting, all the Korean actors were assigned Japanese teachers to study the script and learn to speak Japanese. Kim Min-hee was actually applauded by Japanese journalists at the film's screening at Cannes for her proficiency in Japanese. She is one of the performances I did want to talk about not that any of the performances are bad i think they're all very good this is the one that stands out to me although everybody is being deceptive at moments in the film she's the one who feels like she's also playing two distinct characters we talked about this briefly with bridget helm in metropolis here there's the two versions there's like the soft-spoken kind of innocent naive character and then there's when we go to her perspective we reveal that her character is actually much more forceful aggressive and certainly capable of manipulating people and then definitely not naive that moment where you know suki is trying to get her to marry the count and they have that exchange and she slaps suki I think that moment is played beautifully because it works no matter what knowledge of the film you have. This is just my reading on it, but the first time it happens, it's like this physical expression of her, I don't know, I guess her pain because I read it as, well, she's in love with Suki. But then the second time around, it almost feels like it's a test. She's asking Suki, do you love me? And when she doesn't give the truth, it's hurtful that way. And so it can be viewed both ways and it works both ways. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? It does. And I'm going to kind of echo this. I do think Kim tae actually does some of this too. And I think that she gives a, a very good performance as well. I think a lot is asked of both of them, but I do think Kim Min-hee is probably the one that has the more complex version or the more complex character. You think about it, how easy is it as a filmmaker and as an actor to say, I need you to do something that upon one viewing, this is what it communicates. And, and then I want to do like another take where this is the interpretation. Over the course of the entire film, this is what these two characters and these two actors are doing. To me, it's just tremendous that simple glances, simple like movements take on such different meanings depending on where, where things are at. But yeah, absolutely. Kim and he having such a wide range of things that she needs to hit and communicate is fantastic. 
And this is just somewhat off topic, but I just want to mention it. This is actually the last time that Kim Min Hee worked with any director other than Hong Sang Soo because of that scandal. She had, after working with Hong Sang Soo, had started having an affair with him and he was married. And obviously there's an age difference as well. Sadly, she gets blamed for this. Hong Sing Su still gets to work. Certainly that speaks volumes. Her agency decided not to renew her contract. She lost brand deals and actually left Korea because of the scrutiny. Ever since, has only worked on Hong Sing Su films, even working as like a production manager on some of his films. That being said, Hong Sing Su makes like two movies a year and she does really good work in his films. It is sad that because of this, she really hasn't gotten any other work. Just a side note, not necessarily relevant to this film, but she's an actor I really like, and unfortunately, she's at a point where she's not given a lot of work. I don't normally try to get into celebrity gossip, but I just think it's harmed her career so much that it's worth noting. Yeah. We will eventually get to a Hong Sing Soo film. He is probably one of my favorite Korean directors. Sorry about that. We can get back on track. No, no. I appreciated that side note. I wanted to, I guess, single her out just because I felt like there was a very distinct difference between the two versions of her character. Not to say that Kim Tae-ri isn't also delivering that same sort of thing and doing a great job at it as well. I kind of wanted to talk about Cho Jin-woon, who plays Uncle Koizuki. This was a situation in which when he first appeared on screen, I was a little nervous. I was like, okay, here comes the cartoonish villain. Yeah. And he kind of is on the page. I mean, he's not very complex. Neither of the main male characters are. We're introduced to the old version of him first, and he's got the gray hair and the clearly fake mustache and eyebrows. And I was just like, okay, is this going to be an element of the film that's not going to work for me? But it actually didn't bother me, I think, because of what he brings to it. I think he does a really good job. And I have a quote from him specifically. Park had told him that his character was undernourished, so he lost 30 to 40 pounds. And so this is the quote. Weight control is part of character expression. The dialogue had to be transcribed using Japanese alphabets. Of course, it's hard. Nothing is easy. But if it provides the basis for the character, shouldn't you do the best you can as an actor? It's not a very nuanced character, and he's clearly putting everything he has into it. And I think it shows. On the surface, kind of appears to be a minor character. This is kind of that role where in the U.S. you get this name actor and they maybe just kind of phone in that performance a little bit because they, and I'm using air quotes, don't have anything to do. And here's an example of an actor who just being dedicated to his craft and and willing to do these things for a supporting role. I think knowing who the director is, I think that helps people do that or are they're willing to do that for Park. Um, As far as performances in a Park film, just going back to Kim Min-hee for a second, you talked about the wide range that that she needs to do. How would you rate her in comparison to other Park characters? How would I rate her performance against performances from all of his films? Yes. I'd say it's in the very top. Choi Min-sik in Old Boy, I think, gives a very different type of performance. But another example of an actor just putting everything, he's just so physical, feels like he's got to be leaving set every day just completely exhausted. I think that's a great performance. Obviously, it's a different type of performance, different type of film, but that would be up there too. 
I don't think any of the performances in his films are bad. I just don't normally think of him as an actor's director because he's so technical. What are your thoughts? I agree with that. And and I think that's why both female performances stand out as being kind of exceptional. You you said it. You don't think of Park as an actor's director. However, I do kind of wonder if maybe this film is sort of a shift in that mentality a little bit, because I think one of the highest praises I have for Decision to Leave are the performances. And maybe that's what I mean. I was trying to find the words for why The Handmaiden and Decision to Leave felt different than his other films. And maybe it is that. It's the maybe the writing of the characters and the performances. I've been referencing a lot of discussions with Park surrounding this film because I, I did kind of go down a rabbit hole of just listening to him speak. During his... Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith. I forget the question that came up, but it pertained to the technical elements of film and filmmaking. And and he talked about sound and he referenced how sound is an area of filmmaking emphasized as an important area by filmmakers, by academics, basically everybody and anybody related to the field. However, when it comes to the actual execution, filmmakers basically just go through the motions. They just leave it for the experts, you know, in post, not making it a focus as production's occurring or even in pre-production. And it's just, hey, we'll figure this out later kind of thing. And I'm paraphrasing here. He goes on to say that you can achieve a lot through sound, can convey a lot of the story and, you know, really manipulate audiences, their emotions, maybe manipulate was kind of a harsh word to put there, but you can pull those feelings out of people. What are your thoughts on this one? First of all, I think actually manipulate might be an appropriate word to use in this case. Okay. I think it's part of filmmaking. He's absolutely right on that. And it that is somewhat surprising considering how everybody does talk about the importance of sound. But just thinking about his films in general, he heightens sound the same way he heightens visuals. Very obvious example for this film, that moment where Lady Hideko and Suki are kissing and we get that extreme close-up of their mouths. that heightened sort of saliva sound mm -hmm. it's heightened above what is realistic or what is sort of natural to create an emotion or create some sort of reaction but i also think he introduces props that correspond with sound into his films and that may be where he's coming from with sound in pre-production or on set things are built into the sets or the locations, or there's props that, well, there's a sound that goes with that, and he knows exactly what that sound's going to be, rather than creating the soundscape in post. You know, he already knows what sounds are going to fill that soundscape. He talks to the sound designers in pre-production, during production, and post-production. We've sort of hit on the fact that he works with the same crew. He's worked with the same person regarding sound design for all but one of his films. Justin, can you name which film he didn't work with the same sound designer on? Well, this is cheating because I know, but Stoker is what I would guess. Stoker. You got it. Yeah. Is there any other supplemental material you want to reference real quick? I'll put links to the interviews and things that I referenced in show notes. 
I touched on the film courage video, video essay, why costume design is important. Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith, parts of the DP30 interview. Honestly, for the DP30 interview, probably started around the 17 minute mark. The stuff that exists before it isn't necessarily handmaiden related. Yeah, let's get into, I guess, final thoughts, takeaways. I have one big takeaway here. My takeaway as a film fan is buy physical media. (laughs) And I'm just going to go down a rabbit hole with this one. Well, I could talk about physical media all day. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be a bonus episode. I sat with a Blu-ray copy U.S. version on my Amazon watch list for, I would say, multiple years. I just never pulled the trigger on it. I don't have a good reason. Like Park Chan-wook's the director I really like. To me, I thought this was kind of his crowning achievement as far as filmmaking goes. There were opportunities where I could have bought this movie new for like 10, 15 bucks. Didn't do it. Didn't pull the trigger on it. Now, the lowest price I can find it is about $150. That's kind of my takeaways as a film fan, Justin. Okay, uh, my takeaways as a film fan... By physical media. <laughs> Sometimes you can, no matter what your circumstances are, get lost in a film. For me, it doesn't happen very often. It happened with this one. It's great when it does. And it happened this week. I'm incredibly happy to hear that because I'll be honest, when I chose this film for this episode, I did have an apprehension of what is Justin's thoughts going to be on this one. We've commented on it. I've said it. Park Chan-wook is such a stylized director, and I think that it requires a unique taste. He's not a director for everybody. He doesn't present the easiest material. And on top of that, given how stylistic he can be, you're already going into something that's a challenging subject matter, but it's also being presented to you in a way that's not conventional or maybe you're not used to or you're not comfortable with. I would say, and I would put these as my final thoughts with The Handmaiden, I would throw all of that out the window when it comes to this film. If you don't watch any other Park Chan-wook film, this is the one that you need to see. To me, this is his masterwork. I think he made the best film of his career so far when it came to this film. You know, you said Park Chan-wook is not a director for everyone. I can probably say, I could say up until watching this film and watching Decision to Leave that he wasn't a director for me. Obviously, it wasn't a content issue. He's such a dynamic filmmaker and his films are so visually dense and obviously skill but it's just it doesn't necessarily align with my taste all the time his filmmaking style but that's sort of changed with these last two films not that they're going to be like my favorite films of all time or anything but it makes me excited to see what comes next that being said the handmaiden is his masterwork. i would recommend it i think it's great for just film goers who just love to watch films the more casual film goer i think it's a great film for filmmakers to study, particularly the editing, the screenplay. I think those go hand in hand. And I think there's definitely some things to learn from the way he makes films, his process. You touched on the big heavy hitters when it comes to recommending it to filmmakers. And I do think that this is a director that I could actually listen to him speak about his process. Whether you like his films or not, I think he brings a lot of really good best practices 
maybe they're not being executed in a way that works for you. And and that's fine. But his focus and discussion about like storyboarding, sound, sound design, things that we, we just kind of lose sight of or we don't pay attention to because it's not the sexy thing. It's not the thing that I really like to do when it comes to filmmaking. This is just a small little thing from an Entertainment Weekly interview, and it's referencing like the first day. I remember I had two big surprises that day, the filmmaker says, of shooting the sequence. The first is when shooting the actress that plays Suki, Kim Tae-ri, seemed strangely nervous, and the way she was delivering her lines was coming across as almost stagey. The performance wasn't natural, so I pulled her aside and asked what was wrong. She thought about it for a bit, then simply said, I don't know, and asked to try again. The second surprise was that, just like that, she transformed and delivered a brilliant and natural performance. Justin, what's on tap for our next episode? Yeah, our next episode, we are going to be discussing Emma Selgman's Shiva Baby. This is a film that I have not seen, but Joe, you've seen this. I have. It's sort of a thing that's been recommended to me by Joe. I'm picking it as my selection because I'm kind of excited for it. This honestly was something that I would have picked down the road just to make you watch it. I'm excited for our discussion about it. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson. And Joe can be found at letterbox.com slash jrlefebvre83. Join us next time for Shiva Baby. You don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know oh. No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Cut! And cut! That great work, everybody. That's a wrap.